everyone. I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. This episode is airing on Wednesday, December 15th, 2021, and that is my 14th wedding anniversary. So I thought it would be fitting to do an episode with Chris today about the challenges of long-term illness in a marriage, in our marriage. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that Chris and I are both writers. This past year, we both wrote things for each other. I do find that words are always the best gift. So before we get into the conversation today, we're going to start this episode a little differently. Chris is going to read the letter he wrote me this past Mother's Day that was published on the Athletic website. And I'll end the episode with a story I wrote for the Boston Globe about Chris, our family, and going home. A friendly reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and want to support my work, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. On the December day in 2007, the farmer in the suit he bought for the occasion of giving his daughter away asked one thing of the city kid he'd met only two years earlier. Take good care of her. The things your dad says always stick. Like the day I met him as a 24-year-old baseball writer in Boston, quietly dating the 21-year-old summer intern. Well, he said, standing outside Fenway Park, Guess I'll never see you again, or the time I was looking for work, and you were newly pregnant, and we drove to see your parents in South Dakota. He looked up, and without even a hello asked, Are you proud of what you've done to my daughter? After that, he asked me to help him shovel snow off the roof. The house is what, 5,000 square feet? Most of it one level. Plenty of roof to divide and conquer. At least twice, he hit me, in the shin with the shovel. I smile when I think of these moments, and to this day, I check myself against that concise but comprehensive ask. Take good care of her. For ten years now, you have done the majority of the caretaking. On July 24, 2011, you lived the last day of your old life. It was a day made for baseball. A Sunday, 81 degrees, no clouds, with the Minnesota Twins playing an afternoon game. You'd grown up listening to the Twins on the radio with your grandfather and watching them on TV with your dad. And for five years, you'd led your dream job of covering the team for the local newspaper. Now, at age 27, a cold stop. You were eight months pregnant and six weeks shy of moving to a place most of our family members needed time to find on a map. I had to go. I bought all that was available, a $23 standing room only ticket. In the second inning, you texted me. Look what just happened in here. You sent a photo of a personalized twins home jersey and a cake that read, Canada, eh? We had sushi after and you cried. Cohen was born August 12th. We moved temporarily to your parents' house September 1st. That morning, you nursed Colin 
on the last remaining piece of furniture. The time came to leave, and Cohen had a blowout. Poop! Right up to his neck. He changed his clothes and hurried out. No proper goodbye to the home in which I'd asked you to marry me. I'm not always insightful, but I was the evening I gave you that ring. I can't promise you we will be here forever, I had said, but I can promise you we will be together forever. You and Cohen spent two weeks with your family and met me in Calgary. Neither of us knew just how hard that would be, especially for you. No longer working a job he loved. Newly on Guam. New city and country. No family, no friends. Two incomes cut to one, and three of us instead of two. Groceries and beer cost how much? The sudden and devastating death of my mom. A husband who was having a difficult time at work. A rented house that did not feel like home. And when it began to, owners wanting to move back in. And so, a new rented house. And then, you took care of us. You took Cohen to an early childhood learning program. You applied for a job there, even though you had never taught. The owner said she never had a more animated parent. And that was all the experience she needed. You found us another rental next to a park, a school, and an outdoor rink. After two years, we bought that house, and you made it a home. Your dad and a neighbor finished the basement. You tiled a new shower, changed every light fixture, painted every room, installed a vanity, sanded and painted old furniture, assembled new furniture, and oversaw the installation of new blinds, carpet, and countertops. I love our home. You had our daughter, Willa, in our bathtub. Because, of course she did. You had Cohen with the midwife, and a doula, and no epidural in the St. Paul Hospital. And for you, this was a natural next step. I was nervous for you and for the house. At one point, I ridiculously suggested we tarp the carpet in the bottom six inches on the walls. Krishi said, there isn't going to be a flood. That night, September 28th, 2014, was the experience of a lifetime. I remember Wella being halfway to the world and waiting for the next contraction. She's underwater, I said, concerned. Yes, I was told. She's been that way for nine months. A minute later, she surfaced and took her first breath. Most amazing thing I've ever seen. Thank you for that. Each year with Cohen and Willa has been better than the one before. They're needy and messy and the absolute best part of every day. And then came June 10th and June 17th in 2019. First, this is pointing toward a form of motor neuron disease. And then you are in the early stages of ALS. How long do I have? I asked. A year, the doctor said. You cried. And then he started to fight. He went to that second appointment with medical journals in hand, outlining two promising experimental drug therapies. One of those I received 26 times in my spine, most every time with you sitting reassuringly by my side. And so wonderful doctors not instantly accepted me. 
you had plans to begin knocking on doors. I had always wanted to know every detail about my disease and the science behind the medicine. Better to have a confident mind, I thought. You filled that gap. You read everything, ask every question, and regularly text with our most knowledgeable physician. You routinely finish the sentences. Andrologists who have studied ALS pathology for decades. Meetings with nutritionists and therapists end early because there's little they can tell us that you don't already know. One neurologist told us, you two are what I call super patients. He was talking to you. You told the world my story with brutal honesty and genuine hope. You are the best writer I know. Someday, your blog will be a book. You start a podcast on grief, a topic most of us avoid. You ask me if you are any good at any of this. At the same time, you get notes of thanks. People living with ALS or cancer, people who have lost a loved one, they all say a variation on the same thing. You wrote what I feel. ALS takes and taken the ease of those early days in Boston and Minnesota. But it has given, too. It has given the world a chance to know you, to realize your immense talent and heart. For that, and for you, I am grateful. Happy Mother's Day, love. Chris. This conversation is honest. It wasn't scripted. I had some notes about things to talk about, like always, but you will hear us sorting out questions and issues in a real organic way. It's about the challenges of this life, of navigating marriage and parenting in this life, of how to balance that live every day like it's your last cliche with the reality that that's just not always possible, of how if we are saying Chris is an inspiration, that I am, that our family is, that it's not fair for others going through struggle to look at us and think we have it figured out. If we are inspirational, I hope it's because we are real and honest about how hard this is, and then we just keep trying. And that's what this episode is, a look at two imperfect people who love each other, who have different ways of expressing their feelings and navigating their sadness and grief, and who are just trying each day to do the best they can with the life they've been given. There is, I suppose, a degree of sappiness in this episode, so listener beware. This is our story. Uh, I'm weirdly nervous for this conversation. Normally I have a glass of water next to me, but tonight I have gin. <laughs> well, you make talking look very easy, so <laughs> I would not be concerned. <laughs> I think it's because we're talking about different things. I was saying the other night that so far I think we've mostly talked about what has happened to us and sort of factual things. We've talked about feelings too, of course. But This is about feelings? <laughs> Are you opting out? I was thinking about it. <laughs> uh, but this one actually airs. We're recording this on Sunday, but on Wednesday is when it airs. And it's our anniversary on Wednesday, our 14th. 14th. 14th wedding anniversary. Does it feel like 20, 30? All of them. It feels like all of the years. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought it would be a good opportunity to have a conversation about 
the in sickness part of in sickness and in health and kind of what, what illness means in a marriage. Uh, and of course for us, it's, you know, this is very specific to, to anyone who's going through something like this. And so we're only speaking to our, to our own experience here. I thought that we would just kind of start with, with when we met. It's, it's a, it's a good story. And I don't think that we've talked about it here, have we? Well, it's a good story if it's you. Right, yeah, yeah. It's a good story if it's me telling it. Why? Because... I don't look great at the story. (laughs) So it was summer 2005. Mm -hmm. And I was interning at the Boston Globe as a sports reporter. You were so young. I was very young. I was 21. Oof, jeez. And you had just been hired to cover the Red Sox. It was your first season. I get to Boston. I'm living with Adam Kilgore and Adam went to Syracuse. So he knew you from Syracuse. And he asked me one night, oh, I'm going to go get a beer with Chris Snow and Pete Thamel, who uh, went to Syracuse Syracuse as well and writes for Sports Illustrated. You want to come with me? And I said, sure. So we go to the White Horse Tavern. And what are your recollections? You were there. I was there. I recall that. And it, it also was the kind of night where it feels like a reunion mm-hmm. of several college friends. Right. And so there are lots of stories about junior year this and freshman year this and this game this. <laughs> and you were just kind of sitting there. I was. It was very quickly I was a forgotten member at the table because all the stories were about Syracuse. And at one point, I was sitting next to Adam, right across the table from Chris. And at one point... I was very young. How old were you? I was 20... 23? Four? Three. 23. And he looked across the table, diagonally from him, right past me, (laughs) to Adam, and said, So, Kilgore, are there any hot interns? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Adam put his arm around me and said, you mean besides Kelsey here? (laughs) And I said, and and you had exceedingly short hair at the time. Yes, like Winona Ryder pixie cut. It was a new haircut, a new person who did it. I don't think so, but... you didn't want it exactly as short as it was. I think you're misremembering There's a headband, there's a scalp. (laughs) You're being ridiculous. This was the case. And that prompted a response of, well, you have cute hair. (laughs) And I then told you to stop talking. I had you hello. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. So that was when I realized that Chris is best edited. <laughs> mm-hmm. So did I. <laughs> yes. And, and from there, we fell in love. <laughs> Already, I was falling in love with the best version of you. <laughs> <laughs> you were trusting, you were projecting. As many women do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I know that when you were first diagnosed, we had that really hard week where we didn't have any hope. We didn't think that anything was going to be able to keep you here. And those were the most raw conversations that we've ever had to have. Because in our minds for those seven days, you were going to get sick very quickly and die very quickly based on everything we knew that had happened in your family and what the doctors had kind of already told us. And what was happening to me And what was happening to you already physically, yeah. And one thing that I remember you 
over and over talking about was not, was about you not being as worried about yourself as you were about me and the kids. And I wonder if you can just talk about, about those feelings that you had early on. Well, well, I have a vision mm-hmm. for our lives. And the vision for our life all of a sudden was that it's going to get bad and be over. But that grief, that loss, that incomplete picture was going to play out every single day for you guys. Going to school, getting fit off at school, going out to your practice, dad's on coaching, dad's not here. And that's, that's excruciating. And to think that at the time Cohen was seven and Willow was four, and that meant that for, you know, the majority of her childhood mm-hmm. and more than half of his, this was going to be the case. Mm-hmm. And you would have this, you know, entire responsibility every day and this quiet at the end of the day and this empty spot in bed at night and day after day after day, you know, for thousands upon thousands of days mm-hmm. with the kids and then on your, on your own for many, many, many thousands of days. And though the idea of dying is terrifying and the sadness it induced was like nothing we'd ever felt, um, the longer-term pain and all the things that you know, to go through as three instead of four was that felt more falling. That mm-hmm. felt a larger burden in all this. Mm-hmm. Pretty early on, I think immediately, really, in Miami, maybe, we talked about sharing our story and we talked about me writing. And we, we decided, I, I remember having that conversation on that trip, that we were going to be public with this and that we were going to talk about it and I was going to write it and... And I remember you telling me that you knew I would tell the story well. And was there ever any hesitation for you in being quite public about this? No, none. Because we've always both, and this again is one of the things that attracted me to you, we've always been very thorough and purposeful with everything we do. Mm-hmm. And I felt and still feel that the higher purpose to getting sick with this is to do something with it. And that something was to fundraise. Mm-hmm. And that something was to share our story as a means toward fundraising, toward however this went, mm-hmm leaving for our children a narrative mm-hmm. of how to deal with potentially the ultimate trauma that you can deal with. Mm-hmm. And the idea of suffering in silence, of carrying a burden of hiding aspects of the disease that I was already having to hide mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, jamming my hand in a pocket because it didn't work and mm-hmm. in every room having to do that. So, I think it also unburdened 
me in the sense that this story you told always was a step ahead of actually having to see anyone face to face. And and so when I thought about those benefits, fundraising, utilizing the platform we have, showing our children how to handle this in the way that we wanted to, and and telling everyone we know ahead of time this is what's going on, those all felt so much more beneficial than any potential drawback. So we're how many months into this now? I don't know. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two diagnosis. And I wonder if I've told the story in a different way than you thought I would, or than you envisioned me doing. I so think far. it's become more universal than either of us thought, mm-hmm. in the sense that you have really told the story of when it's like to be human mm-hmm. and deal with struggle. Mm-hmm. And your podcast is, is the most recent way that you've done that. And people gravitate to, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And anyone going through anything that is challenging them to be strong emotionally or physically cannot relate to any one of your posts or podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I don't think going into this, you had any idea you have a podcast. Uh, I don't think you knew that you would write as often as you have. I think that you've done something much bigger than us, much bigger than ALS. And I think you found yourself again as a writer. You were a mom for decades and still are, but you are also this entity who is strong and smart and easily connects to people and, and vice versa. Mm. And so I, I thought that you would tell just our story, and it turns out you told so many people's stories mm. and filled a, a void where it's okay to say, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I think that's another lesson you taught the kids and taught me. I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with the journalist Jeff Perlman, and he said in the in our conversation that his wife tells him that he should emote less. <laughs> <laughs> and he asked me if you ever wish I would emote less. And I thought about it, and I said, "Well, you never really told me that." But uh, I do. I mean, I I talk about my feelings, and I emote a lot more than you do. You vote for both of us. <laughs> and, I, and I do wonder if you have ever wished that I hadn't, and you can be honest, if you ever wished that I hadn't said something that I said or said it differently, or if you wished I would maybe be a little less raw or sad or open. No, I never thought that once. <laughs> because that's who you are. Mm-hmm. And I probably should be more that way than I am. <laughs> And I think it's a it is a trait that we looked at as weakness and it is the ultimate strength. So the last episode that, that we did together, we we talked about you losing your smile and losing your swallowing and getting a feeding tube. Um and the kind of the end of that episode took us to really just one year ago at this time, which seems 
pretty crazy. Like it Plus. seems really crazy to think that you've had a feeding tube for a year. Uh, and one of the things we talked about in that episode was your speech and how at the swallowing test that you had last November, the speech language pathologist said that your tongue was impacted. Uh, and I told you then that I would be shocked mm -hmm. if you would still be talking. I recall you saying it. Yeah. In a year. Um, and we're doing this. And I think that I can often really lose sight of, of, of what a big deal it is that, that you're here, that, that you're here in the way that you're here because life, right? Because you have to keep just doing regular life. And sometimes, oftentimes you, I mean, it's really, it's a privilege to be sort of swept up in that, in the regularness of life. Right. I text you the other day, just yesterday during mm -hmm. the flames game, uh, the kids wanted to go. We hadn't, we'd only gone to one game. We're driving to the rink and I posted about this when we went to the home opener this year, but the sort of tradition that we have is that I park and then I text you when we've parked and the kids come running up to the door to your office and you, they do running hugs and you pick them up and give them. So it's your old enough to run. Yes, exactly. And I could hear them in the back of the car, like planning out who was going to run first. Mm. I'm always like, uh, a bit surprised at the things that sort of take your breath away, you know, going, I'm going to run Willa. And then, and then, and then you, and then I'll get my hug and then you run after me and then you'll get dad, you'll hug dad second. Mm. And I just kind of was stopped by how, how incredible that is that they still have that. Right. I and mean, that's the stuff you're talking about when you were talking about what really worried you at the beginning, like, Willa never would have been old enough to remember that. No. So, I mean, I think that where we were a year ago at this time to be where we are right now is, is, is really, I mean, I know the word miracle is, you know, it's almost like a cliche or whatever, and it's science and it's and all of that, but, but it can be really hard to, to hold on to that feeling all the time. And I don't think you should. Because also it'll wear you down. Like it's exhausting to be so, so in the moment all the time or so, uh, you know, thinking like, oh, I have to appreciate this and I have to appreciate that. And I have to see this moment for what it is that, that, that you just wear yourself down. Right. Um, but last year at this time was a very hard time. It was hard for a lot of reasons. COVID, your feeding tube, you were having all sorts of issues with your speech. We thought it was kind of on the decline. I wonder if you think your feeding tube specifically uh, and the fact that that really propelled me for the first time into like a real caregiver place in our relationship. I wonder if, I wonder if you think that that has changed our relationship at all. I don't think so. I think that you take on challenges mm -hmm. and you took on that challenge of well first how does how does Chris get enough calories prior to the tube mm -hmm. and then how do I give him real blended food mm -hmm. not just this canned or contained formula that the government supplies mm -hmm. so that he can feel more human really yeah and and I think that's an expression of 
love on your part. And I think that thankfully that really is the only thing during the day aside from tying my shoes where you had to do it. And that said, I need to do myself. It's not the mm-hmm. easiest thing. Mm-hmm. We do it for efficiency in the sense that you do it. But I, I don't think so. I think I, I take that as a, a sign of love and caring and I never look at you as a you know, caretaker in the sense of I'm dependent mm-hmm. so much as she loves you so much to do this because she thinks that this will either make me healthier mm-hmm. or happier. But that's really a question for you. <laughs> yeah. Because you're the one doing it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that your feeding tube has changed my relationship with you. I think that there are some ALS patients, or I mean anybody really who has challenges that and they need help, who maybe feel like averse to asking for help or they don't they don't they don't want they're too proud to ask for help i don't you're not that way with me like you don't you don't seem to mind asking me for help which is a good thing there's there's two thoughts i have one i feel exceedingly comfortable around you and the kids yeah asking for help Mm -hmm. and all three of you like to do it the kids really like to help Cohen loves to tie shoes, loves to feed me. Willem will help if she can mm-hmm. in her own way. Outside of the house, especially at work, I don't like to ask for help because I work for a professional hockey team. And everyone is young and as healthy as any person you'll find anywhere. Mm-hmm. Young, healthy, fit, mm-hmm. strong, really strong. Mm-hmm. And so I still just hang up with the idea of being not healthy, strong, in a healthy, strong environment. I think that that, that cuts into my confidence at times. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other part of this is I think people who need help to get things done, need a lot of help for anything, mm-hmm. are so unafraid to ask because they're so relieved to those things done. Mm-hmm. If you can't do whatever it is yourself, and my own example is my shoes, I'm full of natural help because I can take a, a sigh of relief when it's like, okay, my shoes are on, undressed, I'm ready to go out of the world. Mm-hmm. And if there are 10 things on that list, then it's easier to ask for help because mm-hmm. you just know that you need the help to get there. Yeah. And kind of in that line, what I was going to say when you said it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a question for me is, is, you know, I'm very glad that you feel so comfortable asking me for help. And I don't want that to change even in the moments where it feels frustrating. I think for me, the most frustrating part is your unwillingness to adapt to things that could make your life easier and mine easier. So like Mr. Rogers shoes, Velcro. <laughs> there are a numerous, uh, <laughs> there are so many nice slip-ons and you do not own a pair of slip-ons. <laughs> this wonderful country of Canada is not a consumer society. I cannot find shoes I like. 
And there are not $700. There are so many examples of this though. Like for instance, Chris wears this brace when he plays hockey, when he does a lot of things, right? When else do you wear that brace? Uh, Lifting weights. Do you use it when you shovel? Uh, I'm pleased with the weed whacker, actually. Yeah, yeah, with the weed whacker. So basically, closes his hand into a fist. When Chris was, I don't know, one or two months from be after being diagnosed, I found a brace that I thought would be helpful for things like lifting weights or whatever. I bought it for him. It came. I presented it to you. You said this will never work. I don't like this. Send it back. So I did. Mm. Uh, and then many months later. You went out for a beer with our good friend Jarvis, who has a friend who was born with sort of no use of one of his hands. And you came home. You were very excited to tell me um, this guy's a, like a par- on the Paralympic Team Canada Paralympic cycling team. Very active guy. Uh, has you know embraced a lot of really cool um, adaptations and and devices that he can use to make his life easier. You came home very excited to tell me about this brace that this guy showed you. Mm. And you sent me, I'm going to send you the link to this brace. It's, it, it'll, it'll be so, it's so great. So you send me the link and I replied to you, this is the exact brace I bought for you one year ago. And so I bought it, but off a different site in euros and I want to say pay like $30 more than you have. <laughs> and you didn't have it for all of those months when you could have benefited from it. For instance, when you first started playing hockey, uh, you you didn't play until the Flames equipment manager sewed your hockey glove into a fist. Now you don't even use that hockey glove. You use this brace. Mm-hmm. So if you had had that brace from the beginning, you could have been playing hockey literally months earlier. Potentially. No, not potentially. I had to get there on my own. Again. <laughs> so again, I say, those are the things that are hard for me. I work really hard actually to find you things. And when you have a problem, I try really hard to troubleshoot for you ways that I could help you fix that problem. ALS is so impossible in that way because like, I can't make you physically better. I can't find you a way to get better. And so the only thing I can do is try to find a way to make whatever shitty thing is going on with your body a little less shitty. And, and so I, I do have a hard time when, when you're averse to doing things that could make your life easier, especially things that I've spent time and energy to find for you that you just kind of ignore. And I think you, I mean, I know that's not about me, why you're not doing that, but maybe you can, have you thought about why you're averse to those things? I think it's a process to just get comfortable with the idea of any adaptation. Mm-hmm. And it takes using it and experimentation to figure that out. And I recall I used that phrase the first time thinking, this doesn't work. So it was the wrong activity, most likely, that I was trying it for. Mm-hmm. But that is the item that I recommend <laughs> the first time someone contacts me to say, I'm just diagnosed, what do you recommend? And for anybody who's listening who has ALS and doesn't have as good a function with their hands, the brace is from a company out of Europe called Active Hands. And it's a grip aid. And mm-hmm. it's wonderful. So buy it right away. And if you're a caretaker, don't let your person send it back. <laughs> I'm going to get a second one. <laughs> <laughs> I ordered you a second one. The one that's for winter sports. It accommodates a thick glove. Awesome. <laughs> 
You're welcome. Of course you did. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, I was thinking about the way that we interact on a daily basis. And Chris cannot make any facial expressions anymore whatsoever. And facial expressions are really important when you're having a conversation with somebody to be able to get a gauge on how they're feeling, whether they're joking, whether they're sad or upset or confused, whatever, right? And I know that I sometimes misread your delivery because I can't get that sort of sense from your facial expressions. Uh, do you think that that happens a lot? Oh, it happens daily. Yeah. And it, it's enhanced by the fact that I'm often, and this is unfair to you, I have to try so hard in social settings, specifically work, mm -hmm. but also go and talk to team, other parents out about to project, to create some type of intonation mm -hmm. that when I'm home and stickle into, okay, change my work clothes and change the coffee clothes, mm -hmm. I relax. I, I don't want to try as hard. Mm -hmm. And so I am probably more monotone and less purposeful with the communication. And that's something that I need to continue to challenge myself to not be lazy with. Because for sure, we talk and I can't express myself uh, facially. Mm -hmm. And... Even laughing doesn't sound the same, doesn't carry the mm -hmm. same. And so, you know, I, I think that the solution is, is acting like the conversation is the most important now I take. Mm -hmm. And accepting that, does that bring fatigue? Not, not physical fatigue, it brings yeah. the fatigue of, I just want to let myself relax mm -hmm. and not try as hard because mm -hmm. that's hard to do all day. Communication is, and I'm fortunate to say this two and a half years into this, it is the largest frustration every day. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm sitting alone in my office and I'm on a computer and I'm thinking and typing and working, thoughts and ideas are flowing as fast as ever. Mm -hmm. And I am myself. And the same in house. And then someone wants to ask something. Mm -hmm. Or they say something that requires a response. And I start to talk, and it's just not the same person mm -hmm. as is inside my head. And that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, you suffer the consequence of this feels exhausting more than anyone. And those lack of, lack of expressions are... They're, they're really frustrating. It, it happens all the time with a bunch of Cohen's practices on the ice. Mm -hmm. I can't smile to disarm. Yeah. I can't begin a conversation with an expression that says, this is friendly and makes a 10-year-old want to listen. Yeah. And that's... And sometimes I don't even aware of it because I, I can think I'm myself, mm -hmm. but they're looking at me. And they're seeing yep. zero non-verbal communication. 
Yeah, and the expression that your face has is not like a happy expression because no. it's not a smile. And so no. I'm, I mean, I can relate to the 10 year olds because I know that I default to thinking that you're probably in a bad mood. Mm. And that's not fair to you. And it's hard for everybody. And I don't know, especially kids, right? Like they look at us, they want to know, are is this good? Is this bad? Are you happy? Are you sad? And they're looking at our faces for that. And now we don't have that with you. It's a really hard thing. I know I, I talk a lot about missing your smile, but like I miss just your expressiveness so much and being able to see that you're happy mm -hmm. because I don't know now. No, you often say that I'm not. Yeah. And that I get frustrated because you think I'm not happy, which you also think is having to do with you. Yeah. And I'm frustrated because I'm trying Whatever the situation is, and you think that I'm not and not happy. Yeah. It can feel really impossible. And I think one of the, the hardest nights I've had with this recently, we've had with this recently, was um, kind of a blend of two things that are really hard right now. And that's figuring out how we exist socially, both together and like just both the two of us on a date mm -hmm. and also with friends. And also this element of communication. So I know that we've talked, I talked on the last episode at the beginning about recently Chris was in the hospital uh, in, in Toronto and he's doing great. He's all better. And that's wonderful that it's all better. But the night that Chris got out of the hospital, we wanted to go, you wanted to go to this restaurant that we went to a lot in Toronto when uh, when Chris was getting his clinical trial medicine there. So we were in Toronto one, at least once a month for how many months? Eight. Eight months. And we went several times to this Italian restaurant called Piano Piano in Toronto. And it's wonderful. And everybody should go there. Uh, and so this night he got out of the hospital and he wanted to go to Piano Piano. And I was very, right away, very hesitant. I said, well, maybe we don't want to do that. Maybe we can just get takeout. I don't feel excited about going to restaurants without you being able to eat. Uh, that is still a big hang up for me. And you assured me that you wanted to go and that it would be fine and it would be good. And then we got to the restaurant and it was busy and it was loud. And the place where you were seated, you couldn't really like tip your head back, which some, when Chris wants to kind of talk more clearly, even just sort of tipping his head back to like a 45 degree angle is very helpful. And he, and he was sitting on the booth side, so he thought he could tip his head back against the wall, but there was like a mirror there, so he couldn't do that. And I couldn't understand and hear like anything that you were saying. Now, mm -hmm. how much of it I wouldn't have been able to hear anyway because it was loud in there, I don't know. But I found myself asking you to repeat yourself a lot. And then you were frustrated that I was asking you to repeat yourself and so then I tried to lean in and turn my head so I could hear better because I can't read your lips anyway, because they're not working the way they should. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't do me any good to look at your face to see what you're saying. So I leaned in thinking I'd be able to hear you. And that felt very like impersonal to you. So that bothered you. And then I kind of, so then I tried to default to just guessing what you were saying and maybe just responding with like a nod or not. And then you were mad that I wasn't asking you to repeat yourself and so basically everything that I worry about going out happened. And I felt pretty crappy 
after that experience made me think I'm never going to go to a restaurant (laughs) with Chris again. I wonder how you left that experience. I know how I felt. Well, as for that, then I felt bad. Mm -hmm. So I ruined the date to encounter a few of those. And I think it was another reminder that COVID, COVID really concealed to some degree this loss mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. because there was nothing social for a year as I went through losing these capacities. And what I realized that night and what I thought about a lot when considering the potential for social nights with friends is going out is not going to be fun, which I hate to say. Take a restaurant. It's loud, and I can't talk well. And often in that situation, you have to fight for your spot in a conversation, interject at the right time. So I can't talk, and I can't eat. Mm-hmm. So what exactly am I doing there? Mm-hmm. I am there to be there for you, and most likely unless I find a way to adapt mentally to the concept and adapt in the situation to somehow fit to not enjoy myself mm-hmm. at all. Quite the opposite, to, to just not like it, to hate it. Mm-hmm. And that's all over again, led you to realize the loss of eating mm-hmm. and how much enjoyment I get out of a good meal. Mm-hmm. And I ate some that night, enough to get a taste, and that was good. But I'm willing to do that with you. I have very little desire to do that in a group mm-hmm. because I find either around my closest friends who I have comfort with, I don't drink much because at any second, they could ask a question or say something and my swallowing has to be really deliberate mm-hmm. and focused on. And so I just default to not consuming anything. Mm-hmm. So this this is not an easy one to solve. I don't really have a solution. No, it's really hard. And, um, you know, I've talked to my therapist a lot about the sort of I'm so scared of moving on without you in parts of my life. Like, I hate that feeling. And I feel, it feels awful to think like, oh, if I want to have a fun night out, I have to do it without you there. Like, I asked you a couple weeks ago, what if we did a brewery crawl with friends? We did this before COVID a couple times. And it was so fun. And I, it was, and I, now that, you know, everyone's vaccinated and stuff, maybe, maybe we could do that again. And you said, well, I don't know that you'll want me there. I'm not going to be any fun. And I'm really still struggling. And again, there's no, like, there's no way to wrap this up, but it's just the honest truth about what this is. Like, I'm just really struggling with this notion that I should, that if I want to feel free to just focus on like being in the moment and having fun in a social setting. It's hard for me to to do it with you there because if you're there, I feel so worried about you and I feel worried that you're not having fun. 
and I feel worried that you're struggling or you're struggling with conversation or, or whatever it is. And, and there's no, there's no answer for this one because I'm not really willing to have fun without, like, I don't want, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to say, oh, well, if I'm going to be able to just let my hair down, I got to do it without my husband here because you're the most fun and you're the person that I want to be around in a room. And it's just a really, it's a hard one. And I don't know if there's a solution for it or if we'll find our way through it, you know, how we'll find our way through it. But it's a, it's a tricky place that we're in right now with figuring out what socializing looks like for us. I think you give yourself permission to enjoy yourself. Yeah. I think the settings that are just impossible, mm-hmm. a loud bar, a really loud restaurant. Mm-hmm. And those you should do at times with your friends because you shouldn't not do it. No matter what the challenge we've met, I always thought that this disease, if there's something that we can do, we have to do it. And in your case, you can't stop doing things just because I can't. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that we should try to create nights out that are at a place that isn't the loudest. Yeah. And with the right size group and the right people themselves who know mm-hmm. around me how to create a conversational flow that I can function in. Mm-hmm. And I think that those times I'll need to develop and will in time develop a plan for what to eat, what to drink, what to do or not do, and hopefully settle into that. Mm-hmm. And the nights were just us, and we'll know where to go because we're going through a process of adapting mm-hmm. and learning. Yeah. And I know that failure doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. especially in this context. But like anything, we had to learn and figure it out, mm-hmm. and then we'll know what to do, mm-hmm. and it'll feel better. I think it kind of goes back to that question that I've been asked a bunch about what I fell in love with about you. And one of the things that I've always loved really about us together is how, how good we are in a social setting and how we've always like played off each other really well and, and had a nice real, you know, volley back and forth with funny stories. And, and, you know, I think it's just really the notion that I'm, that I'm not going to have that in that way anymore. And it's, it is, it's just like another thing you have to grieve. It doesn't mean that it can't be there. In fact, we had a moment like this the other night, Chris had some friends over to play poker and I said something and you played off of it and it was very funny and it felt like it felt good. It felt like, so it's not like those opportunities are never there, but. No, they're just not going to be there in a loud yeah. location. Mm-hmm. And Again, because I did two years ago. Yeah. And the starter's office. Yeah, we'll take, take this. Exactly. And that's what I meant earlier when I was talking about kind of losing sight of that sometimes. It's like you can get caught up in these things that are things that are worth grieving, but they're also like, okay, I'll take that. Right? It's kind of hard to find the balance there sometimes for me, anyway. That's okay. Yeah. Is it ever hard for you to not mm-hmm. focus on those things? Too much? 
yeah, it's hard anytime there's a situation that I know I can't do it. Yeah. And it's even places that aren't loud. It's, it's that I can't insert myself loud enough and clear enough to grab the attention of the room and say what I want to say. Mm-hmm. Or not to change the word because I can pronounce a different one far yeah. easier. Mm-hmm. And then the statement or joke, it loses its cadence or loses its Punch just line, yeah. natural word selection because I had to substitute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a daily thing. It will be a daily thing for as long as I can talk. So I, I've had a pretty hard fall and I did have a pretty hard fall, I guess. And I, I think I'm doing better right now, but I didn't feel like it made a lot of sense because last fall was really hard. And so I've had a hard time figuring out why I'm having a hard fall this year when really your health has been pretty stable. But it seems to me like you've had a hard fall too with your own mental health and I don't know, feeling down, feeling stuck, feeling whatever. I talk about this stuff a lot with with my friends and then I write and I talk in podcasts and things like that, but you don't talk about it a lot. No. Why? Um, I don't get asked much. I ask you all the time how you are. <laughs> I say fine. <laughs> yes. The only you ask. Okay, so why don't you talk to me more about how you're doing? I guess I find the notion tiring. I have to live it, and I don't necessarily want to sit down and break it down at mm-hmm. the end of the day. You know, something that I think the you know, denial is the right word, but the mm-hmm. idea that I, if my days are really unchanged relative to prior to diagnosis, mm-hmm. my patterns go toward what I do, coaching, if those are unchanged to a large degree, then I can maintain the mentality that I am unchanged to a large degree. And I think that there's something healthy to that and something unhealthy to that. Right. And I think when, so I think that of late, the struggle for me has been watching it affect your, like it's clear that you're having a hard time. And, and so I think that it is an element of denial because you don't, you, you don't connect those two things then because you're kind of like denying yourself the right to feel that way because your life is sort of unchanged and then it comes out in other ways. Hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. You are a master compartmentalizer. <laughs> it is one of your best skills. <laughs> For better or worse. Right. And I think that's what this really is, right? Like you can put things to the side in a way that I'm not good at. And so I, no. that means that I sit in them, I deal with them. I have to, I have to address what's happening because I can't just set it aside, but you set it aside and then you set it aside for so long. My armchair therapize you that you don't see it then coming out as some in some different way. Would you say that's right? That's really true. So in this line, and you did mention that you've talked a lot to your therapist a couple times in, about writing, but you have been very averse to therapy. Mm-hmm. And you're going now, but I think after enough times of 
of of our daughter saying, why is everybody in therapy but daddy? (laughs) (laughs) But have you thought about that? You personally, because you would never suggest that somebody else not go to therapy or that it's not useful. I think I found the idea of finding the right person or falling. That I would have a high high standard in the sense that I had like a really non-negotiable series of checkboxes that want that person to mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of personality approach. You don't think it has anything to do with you not wanting to deal with things? It could. I, I just think that if you said, here's someone and they are 100% exactly what you're looking for, then I think I would have died at first. It's just, it's a long story. <laughs> and so There's a lot, yeah. The idea of going trying to get into all that mm-hmm. and then thinking, nah, this versus Ashri, and then do that again and again and again. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the version of our family that exists on social media. And it's very much like, you know, oh, you guys are so positive. You guys are so inspiring. And this has been a problem for me personally. Because I am probably like to a fault honest or like I don't like the idea of not being authentic or genuine or something. And so I I struggle with this notion that people think that's what we always are because we are not always like that in our own lives. We have real struggles and we have and we are just like a normal family in a lot of ways where our kids are driving us crazy a lot and we are driving each other crazy a lot. Is that something you ever think about? Well, I don't post videos of well, throwing a water bottle at us. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Um, I think that what is reflective of us is the resiliency and the generally really positive energy that the kids apply to our daily lives and situation. Mm-hmm. And the kids who obviously ask a lot of questions and have had a lot of answers, but they ask you questions and get into moments about my health that are sad, mm-hmm. but by and large, they are energetic and positive about my situation in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we go through our growing pains like every family does with the kids mm-hmm. learning what it's like to be seven and ten and us learning how to parent a seven and ten year old. Mm-hmm. And I make one few mistakes that are even cure because you read books, I don't. <clears throat> but I think that we're authentic if nothing else. Yeah. We're real with nothing else. Mm-hmm. And are we perfect? No. Mm-hmm. Is this house one that is devoid of any at all yelling and, and you know, dealing with strife? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that line, I wanted to talk about parenting with illness as a background. Because I think you and I approach this a bit differently. In general, I'd say that I approach parenting with more of a like mindset of, these are kids who aren't capable of making the best choices and decisions. I think I've really gotten it the last 
three or four days. <laughs> okay, never mind. He's figured it out. We don't have to talk about it. <laughs> but do you think that you have a hard time looking at a behavior in the moment and saying this could be about something bigger? Yeah, last week and certainly years prior to that. <laughs> Definitely. The, the, the problem I've had that I had to get over, and it's my problem, is I go through this long, saucy day. Yeah. And I set the kids to be easier because my situation is challenging. Mm-hmm. And that's totally unrealistic. And yet they are, <laughs> that's the crazy thing, they are often aware of the fact that I need, I don't know, an extra hug, an extra something. Mm-hmm. But that, almost definitely, that's there that I had to work on and continue to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, parenting is hard enough. And then when you throw in this layer of it, it's just so much harder because, I don't know, I know that for me, I have, I probably overcorrect on the other side of things where I am... Maybe I'm too permissive about some things because I I just know how hard life has already been for them and could continue to be for them. And and so I just think, oh, I just want home to be this soft place to land for them. And I don't I just know the world's gonna beat them up and life's gonna beat them up enough. And I just and I just want them to be happy when they can be. And that's not always and sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's it's hard. And I think you and I struggle to find a balance in both directions, right? To meet in the middle. The other challenge, and I think this is when we talked about it and probably argued over, is because we don't know what my future holds, you apply additional pressure to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. to parent really well, yep. to not leave negative impressions. Yes. And I have found that unfair because... It's that's just a lot. Totally. It is a lot. It's totally a lot. And I will go to a place in my head where I'm like, I don't want them to have this memory. Like if you can't talk Mm -hmm. in a year, I don't want them to have these be the memories of us all bickering about stupid, small things, you know, because, well, who wants that as a memory? (laughs) And, and so, yes, I absolutely put a lot of pressure on myself and on you to get it right. Quote unquote, get it right which I don't know what that is because, well, I've never done this before, right? I just know I just know they're so little and they just don't deserve to be going through this. And so I know that that colors a lot of my parenting. And you're not wrong. It's just, it's a hard thing to, to add on top of mm-hmm. the existing challenges. Yeah. One of the things that I've written about and I've talked about is living in this place of uncertainty. I'm just not knowing. I'm not knowing what tomorrow and whatever, everybody lives in that really, blah, blah, blah. But we are in it in a different way, obviously. It's really a weird place. And I know we've kind of talked about it in previous episodes, but I think that you used to have a really hard time with like fixating on something going wrong with your body or whether something was changing in your body. And and we haven't talked about this publicly, but you've been, you've dealt a bit with some sort of weakness in lateral movements on your on your one good hand. Uh, it's, it's terrifying, uh, to think about. And I think that you have done such a good job of not 
really focusing on it so much that you're that it's kind of consuming you, which which has happened to you in the past with other things. And this is not a small one. And I just I wonder how you have gotten to that place where you aren't doing that anymore. Well, and first of all, at the hand, I I can do everything I need to do. Yeah. And Chris' strength is strong, and so I, I view it as I view, this is two for answer to this. One, there's a path I travel with any change that I had, mm-hmm. and the first part is fear: is this changing? Could this change? And then there's that actual loss and the mourning of it. Uh, or it doesn't progress, mm-hmm. and it just takes X hundred days to go by until just feel less burdened mm-hmm. by it. And there's no, there's no controlling the pace of going to the steps. Mm-hmm. There's just, and this is a learned behavior, telling yourself, I can't focus on that because that is so exhausting and energy sucking. Mm-hmm. And if I get into those patterns, honestly, the, the reset day is is often the day that I go in for my monthly uh, dosing. Mm-hmm. And I had that the other day where I was concerned because of the pneumonia mm-hmm. that my breathing was not good. Mm-hmm. And to, to have a test result that was my best in more than a year and a half, close to two years, was hugely affirming and it's like a, a release. Mm-hmm. The reality is that I don't know the path any of this is taking. And so when I say, okay, I have slight inability to do certain things and fully let you other things in my left hand, then I think about my speech mm-hmm. and how they said, your tongue is affected. And you said in a year, you likely won't talk. Mm-hmm. And today, my tongue is the same as it was. Mm-hmm. And when ALS started to aggressively take my right hand and forearm, and I got on that trial medication, my right shoulder is still extremely strong. Mm-hmm. So these things have somehow stopped. And a year, two years have gone by in those two instances. And so... If that's happened, then I cannot predict anything elsewhere mm-hmm. because I've seen progression and then the ceasing of it. Mm-hmm. And like we always say, we'll, we'll find a way, we'll adapt. Mm-hmm. And though terrifying, we will. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. I think one of the things this fall for me, which I mentioned I've had a hard fall, has been is this spot that we're in, in your illness, it's, it's quite, we're like in the long-term phase of, of this, right? Like you're two and a half years into this. It's not that sort of rawness of the diagnosis is, is sort of gone. Even those nine months where you weren't having progression is those are gone. And now we're just kind of in it. And it's kind of like, you're in the, I don't know, you're just kind of slogging along in this thing that you can't get out of. And there's no end in sight. And it kind of feels exhausting. And the sort of like clarity that you have that we had right after you were diagnosed that I think lots of people experience immediately after they're diagnosed or there's a loss or a tragedy, the sort of sense of like, I see now it's important. 
and I can just focus on that, like that wears off. To an extent. Yes, to, for sure, to an extent. But to a pretty big extent compared to like what it was, I think, in those early months. Of course. And um, I've talked in this podcast before about the author Kate Bowler, and she is she she's living with stage four cancer, and her life, like yours, has been extended by a clinical trial. Only three percent of people who have her cancer qualify for these immunotherapies that she qualifies. So she's said she has the magic cancer, and you know, as far as that's concerned, you have the ma- magic ALS, mm-hmm. right? Only one percent of people who have ALS qualify one to two qualify for for Chris's drug. So she has a book called No Cure for Being Human. In this part of the book, Kate Bowler is is talking to a friend who is a widower, and she's calling this like the second phase of loneliness. And she says to him, I've been depressed before. This isn't depression. Three years after his wife's death, Steve has been feeling similarly. We have spent hours on the phone trying to sift through the things we've lost, the things that remain. Gone is our innocence about the cost of love, astronomical, and our confidence in the future, dubious. There is considerable discussion about not wanting pain to make us narcissistic and allowing friends the latitude to describe bleaching a shirt as a tragedy. And we fully agree that we stumbled into the heart of the mystery, that there were moments of suffering that felt unmistakably like gifts. And that really hit for me because I think that that kind of explains why I really struggled this fall, even though last fall was a lot harder, because there is something in that suffering that feels like so much clarity and so much love like you feel love in a different way when you're going through something like that. It's really just about the notion that there's these different stages of this and that we're in this different stage now where things feel different. It's, it's going back to that whole thing of, of just like the small things upsetting you and you losing sight of that whole only love now. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like you lose that clarity. You think she says in there, I thought it had changed me completely. I thought I was always going to be that way. Right but you can't always be that way. And so I'm saying last fall was so hard and so painful. And I had days where I didn't get out of, like I couldn't leave the house because I cried all day. But there was also in that suffering, there were things that felt unmistakably like gifts. And I just wondered if you found that at all relatable, that sort of notion that in the most painful periods, life becomes so clear and love becomes so pure. And then as time wears on, even though you're maybe still in this, it's harder to to get to those places. I could I could relate to that because I settled into this period, and it could be short, but it feels like it could be incredibly long. Where I'm, for the most part, okay, mm-hmm. and when that's the case, it's not as easy on a Tuesday, November, mm-hmm. to be your absolute. Best self. Mm-hmm. And, and I did resonate that other aspect of it can be very easy to be, I guess, angry at other people finding things that are really not important to a huge deal mm-hmm. and to cause such stress. Mm-hmm. And those are times for you to take a breath and say, you know what, that's someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to be life and death to feel like life and death to others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I, the response to this is a challenge myself to 
not take a single day of taking corner practices. I can drive him and I can go on the ice mm-hmm. and I can coach. And to try to have enough things in my day-to-day life that I feel that gratitude, that I ensure that that gratitude streak is alive and it's not, mm-hmm. it's not sinking into feeling upset or bad for myself and therefore not appreciate what I have. Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard because you're balancing the such a human emotion all at once, essentially all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I've said to you before that, that one of the things that would be, you know, I can think a tragedy in this is that, that we would come out of it sort of unchanged. And it's not possible to go through something like this and not change in some ways. I think it's, it's changed me. It's changed a lot about how I view the world and how I think and act. Do you think it's important for this to change you? Of course. And she can't not change you. Mm-hmm. I think... It's changed. I've had to accept the fact that it's changed how everyone's easy. Mm-hmm. How I sound, how I look, therefore how I act, mm-hmm. how much I act. And, and so I had, to, I had to change what I value mm-hmm. about myself. Yeah. And if if before it was, I can be a presence in a meeting. I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can be the coach who smiles the most, I can't. Mm-hmm. If I can be that dad who can be silly and loud with 10 kids, I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I had to redefine to an extent how... I try to do those things and figure out what things I can be mm-hmm. that I can take more more joy in. And so one thing I see with Gola, so I think my relationship with her the last few months is stronger and stronger because I focus more on one-on-one time, sheer distractions, just being present with her. Mm-hmm. Because the kids are the kids are really fascinating. I either can see or I just perceive that most individuals look at me differently, talk mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. The kids look at me like I am the same exact person. Mm-hmm. They look at me like I'm still smiling at them. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So I have to just, this is a continual thing, accept and redefine what I value myself. Has that changed for you at all in our relationship? Probably hasn't changed enough. What does that mean? It means that I haven't given enough thought or energy to whatever you've lost in terms of interaction or emotional feedback that I get. Uh I haven't done enough to figure out how I fill those gaps to get back to the same overall quantities of four. Yeah. What what has been, do you think, the hardest part about your illness for our marriage? 
And I think that you don't get as much certainty about how I feel in communication. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, a feedback loop that is reassuring as often, because it has to be verbal and talked out and then thoughtfully at length. Whereas I could do it so quickly before. Yeah, it's hard. because I know a shitty kisser. <laughs> Lips, man. They're required for kissing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Because I get that you want to just relax when you're at home. And I understand that, that want. But also you can't not give energy to the way that we're communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Like we said at the beginning, this is airing on our anniversary. We got married on a minus nine degree Fahrenheit day in St. Paul, Minnesota in December. It's incredible that anyone came. It is incredible. <laughs> well, listen, I'm from the Midwest, so the pe- my people were going to show up. <laughs> but your people, maybe not as certain. That's probably, it's incredible that your family came probably. <laughs> um, last year on on our anniversary, we watched our wedding DVDs with the kids the other day. They asked if we could do that again. And that was one of the worst nights I actually have had. It was so depressing. It was horrible. Was it hard for you too? Well, we just had nothing to really celebrate the day. We were not in a celebratory place. No, you had just had your feeding tube surgery like two weeks before. We were worried about your voice. So I was so worried about your voice. And then here you are. In these wedding movies, and you were, you know, so physically whole, your body was doing everything you wanted your body to do, and your face was so expressive, and your voice, and it's funny how Willa says that your voice from before, she just says, you sound so young, daddy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So apparently you just sound old now. (laughs) That's how she thinks about the change in your voice. But how do you feel, how do you feel this year on anniversary compared to last year? Better. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. I think I've traveled this path the last few months of the summer was great. Mm-hmm. And we were out with friends. We had our day of Fenway and my 40th. And those were all comfortable, mm-hmm. familiar environments. Mm-hmm. And then I had to reinsert myself into work. And then voice challenges, environmental challenges. And I think just the last little bit, I feel like I'm shedding some of the sadness, anxiety, what have you, um, and just a little more at ease with who I am. You know, I am still shocked every time I go to fucking practice with Colin and say something to those 16 kids and they nod their heads mm-hmm. because they understand. And that I can't take that for granted. I don't take that for granted. Yeah. So it's it's this this plateau. Yeah. And you could never see the edge of the plateau. Mm. If it's right there, if it's far off, you just don't know. Yeah. And I am in a phase I think where I feel pretty good about that plateau. Mm-hmm. It's it's a crazy disease. I've said this a lot. And I actually like this about it. My sister has a friend who has cancer and she goes and has scans and then sits in that absolute 
fear mm-hmm. for two weeks until she sees a doctor. And she walks in, the doctor knows that result and knows those odds. No one has any idea what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. They could guess. And they'll be guessing based on a population that has childhood trajectory and a medical drunk trajectory that is younger than mine. Mm-hmm. And so, really, I know where I'm at when anyone else. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't either. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm, long story short, in a place where I'm very lucky that I could work, I can play, mm-hmm. I can do this. And a year ago, on our anniversary, we did not see me talking out loud. Mm-hmm. And I can still make a joke, and it's not too loud. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So really, it's, it's in and out of gratitude, in and out of fear, yeah. in and out of loss. And I can't control these things. And like you often say, it's not going to be an issue today. And it's not going to be an issue tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we're good for a couple of days. We all have a song that makes us really think about, that fits our life perfectly or whatever. And for me, it's a song called I Choose You by Sarah Bareilles. Uh, it goes, we are not perfect. We'll learn from our mistakes. And as long as it takes, I will prove my love to you. I am not scared of the elements. I am underprepared, but I am willing, and even better, I get to be the other half of you. Tell the world that we finally got it all right. I choose you. I will become yours, and you will become mine. I choose you. And that's how I feel about you. I love you. I love you, too. Happy anniversary. You, too. Let's just like better this year. Something better this year, yeah. No wedding DVDs. <laughs> the kids will be disappointed. <laughs> you can do those. Just something additional. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully no crying. <laughs> All yeah. right. Thank you again. Anytime. I'm always here when you're stuck for a guest. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye. In August, Chris turned 40. He mentioned in our conversation what a magical birthday it was. And if you follow us on social media, you might know that he and the kids threw out first pitches at Fenway Park before a Red Sox game. After we got back to Calgary, I wrote a story about that day and so much more. And I want to end today's episode by reading it. Here we go. When I was 21 years old, I fell in love at Fenway Park. I didn't meet my husband in the stands or the beer line or during a shared smile over Sweet Caroline. Instead, we fell in love in the press box. In the summer of 2005, I was a 21-year-old intern in the Globe Sports Department, and Chris Snow was the 23-year-old newly minted Red Sox beat writer. We first met at the White Horse Tavern on Brighton Ave in Alston, where my fellow Globe intern and roommate for the summer, Adam Kilgore, introduced us. It wasn't long before Chris started driving me to Fenway. Adam noted subtly, Snow has never offered me a ride to work. In August, 16 years, two kids, and one terminal diagnosis later, we went back. We walked the hallways, hugged writer friends, and stood in front of the cameras instead of next to them. I pointed out the media dining room to Cohen, 10, and Willa, 7, telling them their dad and I had some of our first dates there, between filing pregame stories and first pitch. 
We thought we'd done a good job of hiding our budding romance until one day someone in the Red Sox media relations department changed my byline from Kelsey Smith, my maiden name, to Kelsey Snow in the daily clips they staple to the game notes. How's that for foreshadowing? What we couldn't have guessed all those years ago was the reason we finally returned to the press box in August. Why we talked to reporters and then walked to the mound where Chris, Cohen, and Willa threw out ceremonial first pitches before the Sox played the Rays. All of that happened because Chris has amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, commonly known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and he is supposed to be dead. The summer I met Chris was the best one of my life. My days were filled with work and writing and learning from some of the greats in the business. My time off was filled with new friends and exploring a new city. Many days, I walked from my apartment in the South End through the Back Bay and Copley Square, along the Common, wandering through the winding streets and staring at buildings and statues and tiny little graveyards older than anything my young Midwestern eyes had ever seen. Until I got to the North End, grabbed a cannoli from Mike's Pastry or a slice from Pizzeria Regina, hopped on the tea, and rode home. I fell in love with the city, the history, the architecture, the sailboats filling the Charles on a sunny summer day, the streets that dead end without warning. And then... I fell in love with Chris. He was funny and passionate. He laughed easily, and he made even a mundane outing seem like the most exciting event in the world. He was also brash and confident in a way that people I grew up around just aren't. He was, in my estimation, the best thing about this beautiful place I was living. Almost immediately, home, for me, became wherever he was. Home, for Chris, was Boston. He grew up in Melrose, went to Malden Catholic High School, and then left for college at Syracuse. When he moved back to Boston to cover the Red Sox, he thought he was going home for good. In the same way the great Peter Gammons had before him, Chris melded the city and the team in a way that only a native son could, once calling a regrettable Kurt Schilling fastball, quote, the kind of pitch you pay 75 cents for on Route 1 in Saugus. He wrote words that resonated with so many, and once, he wrote some for me. By the fall of 2005, I was back at the University of Kansas for my senior year. I woke up on October 1st, my birthday, with his game story from the night before in my inbox and a note that said, you inspired this. October dawns today, he wrote, and it all becomes so elemental. Injuries, call-ups, disabled list visits, slumps, fatigue, all issues and discussions now tabled. Now, just baseball. Two games to go, all tied the Red Sox and Yankees, in an epical but simple conclusion to a season that Johnny Damon dubbed one of the best in baseball history. Now, since Chris's ALS diagnosis, it all really has become so elemental. And I suppose that, more than anything, brought us back to Fenway Park. When I left my childhood town of 900 in South Dakota, I knew I wouldn't go back. After less than two seasons as the Red Sox beat writer for the Globe, Chris got a job working for the Minnesota Wild. I graduated from Kansas, we got engaged, and we moved to Minnesota. Chris was the director of hockey operations for the Wild, and I covered the Twins for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. After five years, Chris got a job working for the Calgary Flames. I was pregnant with our first child and knew being a baseball beat writer and a mom wouldn't work for me. And so we moved to Canada. For so long, we were unmoored in the way that happens when you leave the place where you grew up. Now, a decade after moving to Calgary, our roots feel firmly planted here. And yet... The pull of home is a powerful one, never more so than in times of struggle or loss, and in the last two years, our family has grown used to living in that space. Chris was 37 years old when doctors gave him 6 to 12 months to live. I was 35. Our kids were 7 and 4. What do I do now? Chris asked the neurologist who diagnosed him. Do what brings you joy, he said. 
ALS generally has a life expectancy of two to five years, but the kind of ALS Chris has is particularly aggressive. It's also genetic. Not even a year before Chris was diagnosed, his dad, Bob Snow, a former Somerville School's assistant superintendent, died of the same disease. He has also lost two uncles to ALS, David Snow and Brad Snow, as well as Brad's son, Matt, who was only 28 when he died. Bob, David, and Brad all died within nine months of diagnosis. Matt, within 18 months. We were gutted, but not hopeless. There was a clinical trial, the neurologist said, perhaps the most promising ever to come along for ALS. One week later, Chris joined that trial. Two years later, we started planning his 40th birthday celebration, one we weren't supposed to get, and that is what finally brought Chris home, back to Boston and back to Yawkey Way, to the ballpark that has been a thread woven throughout his life. When Chris was 16 years old, his first job was selling lemonade during Red Sox games. When he was a student at Syracuse, he moved home for two straight summers to intern at the Globe, spending countless nights in the Fenway press box writing sidebars. When he was 23, the universe brought us together there, as if writing on deadline weren't stressful enough without all the butterflies of having your future spouse typing at the next keyboard. And the day after he turned 40, 14 months after he was supposed to die, he walked onto the Fenway Park pitcher's mound to throw a first pitch with the good hand he has left. The drug Chris is on is called Tofersen, and when we realized it was created by Cambridge-based Biogen, Chris looked up the address. Turns out Biogen's offices are next door to the apartment on Binney Street where Chris lived the summer we met. He gets the medicine every four weeks via lumbar puncture, which means he has had 31 needle pokes to the spine in two years. The medication remains experimental, but for us, the results are concrete. Tofersen has not cured Chris's ALS, but it has kept him alive in all of the most meaningful ways. ALS has taken Chris's dominant hand and his ability to smile, make facial expressions, and swallow most foods. It has changed his voice and how he eats, mostly through a feeding tube, but thankfully he can still manage small bites of freshly shucked oysters and lobster drenched in butter. It has not taken his determination, his positivity, his resolve, or his resilience. On social media, people often use the hashtag SnowyStrong in posts about him, and I know unequivocally that he is SnowyStrong because first, he was Boston Strong. When we stepped onto the field before the first pitch ceremony, I watched him. I do that a lot now. I saw him fill his lungs with that distinct Boston sea salt city air and look up at the suite full of our friends and family waiting to cheer us on. I watched him fist bump Sox manager Alex Cora, who was a player on the teams Chris covered when he was at the Globe. I listened to him talk to Ray's pitching coach, Kyle Snyder, who came over from the opposing team's dugout to say how much Chris inspires him. And I stood next to him as we posed for a selfie with Red Sox president Sam Kennedy, who mentioned he wanted to send the photo to Theo Epstein, who was the general manager when Chris covered the team and who has been an incredible friend and supporter since Chris was diagnosed. We stood on the first base line for the national anthem, and I watched Cohen and Willis standing in front of us, singing along, their hats pressed against their hearts. I put my arm around Chris. I told myself, in the way that you do when you are aware of how precious moments like this are, to be present, to remember, to soak it all in. The anthem ended, and our picture showed up on the jumbotron. I listened to the PA announcer say, Melrose native Chris Snow, and tell his story, our story. Then I watched the people watch Chris. It's a privilege to witness a miracle unfolding every day in front of your own eyes, and that's what Chris is, a miracle. As we walked to the mound and all around the stadium, people stood to cheer. I knew they understood that too. Willa threw her pitch and ran into my arms. Cohen, a natural lefty, threw a strike from the rubber and turned to look at me with his jaw dropped in amazement. And then Chris, a converted lefty, took the ball. 
What he did with it, I knew, didn't matter. He'd already won. Two years ago, when I thought about this milestone birthday, I pictured wheelchairs and breathing machines and a host of medical devices keeping Chris alive. And that was if he made it to 40 at all. Instead, here he was, walking to the mound, filling his lungs with air, picking up a ball, and throwing a first pitch. After, we walked down the third baseline, and as we did, the people stood. They touched their hearts and pointed to us. They raised their fists in solidarity. They clapped and cheered. Again, I watched my husband. I saw the tears in his eyes, the appreciation in his heart. Chris has not had an easy life. He has lost both of his parents, his mother to suicide, his dad to ALS. He has lost parts of his physical self and parts of his identity. But on that day, in that great ballpark, he reclaimed one very important thing. On that day, he remembered where he is from. Today's episode of Sorry I'm Sad is my last one before Christmas. I'll be back in the new year with more stories to share with you. One last reminder that if you value the work I'm doing and want to support it, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, to become a member for as little as $5 a month. It makes a huge difference to me and helps make my work sustainable. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is now.